When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Final Dive of Walter St. Clair My husband was an experienced diver, cool under pressure, adventurous, and always patient. He taught diving classes to newbies, which is how we met. I wasn't much of a diver myself, but I enjoyed accompanying him and being his eye in the sky, so to speak. His preference was cave diving, so I'd lounge by the water and enjoy nature while monitoring him as he explored. Once he'd surfaced, we'd watch his video footage together. We had a good time. He was serious about what he did and always invested in the greatest, newest, safest, and most expensive equipment on the market. And, as it turns out, that equipment was how I was able to be with him in his final moments. My husband died five years ago at the bottom of Ranica Propast in Czech Republic. He died on his third dive, trying to recover a body that had been lost for years. What he said in his final moments has been on my mind ever since that day. Communicating with someone underwater isn't the easiest or cheapest thing to do, especially when you're tackling what's thought to be the deepest underwater cave in the world. That's why most divers limit communication to hand gestures. That was not an option for us, since I wasn't joining him under. Instead, I monitored his heart rate and we communicated through what you could call a radio, except it transmitted sound waves and not radio waves. The result was similar, though. The audio quality wasn't the best, especially at lower depths. Going down, he'd set up a series of relays and amplifiers to make sure our voices reached one another. There's an informal rule among divers that if you see a fellow diver in danger, you try to help them. If you can't save them, or if they're already dead, you try to bring them home. Two weeks before Walter died, as he was exploring the cave for the first time, my ever-calm husband's voice came in through the radio. There's a body, he said, through buzzing static. I remember feeling a knot of apprehension in my throat. It wasn't a fear for Walter per se, though maybe it should have been. There was a reason I never joined him in those caves, and it was my fear that those tight, dark passages and sharp rocks that could easily tear off your equipment. There was a reason I never joined him in those caves, and it was my fear of those tight, dark passages and sharp rocks that could so easily tear off your equipment. I felt second-hand fear for the trapped diver, knowing he must have died alone, disoriented, and knowing full well that he was doomed. That's the thing with diving deaths. You know. You almost always know, because short of suddenly passing out, you can usually see a roadmap of how, why, and how long you've got. Walter explained the body was stuck to a cave wall. He couldn't see exactly what he was stuck to, but when a push didn't dislodge him, it was clear he wasn't going anywhere. Walter posited it must have been the body of Miloslav Novak, who disappeared exploring the cave a good 12 years before Walter. He was doubtably just bones at that point, but Walter hoped to recover his body all the same. However, he was set to start his long ascent and decompression, so he flagged his location with an orange marker and decided he'd come back later to be safe. 
Surely enough, a week later, with a lightweight lighting rig and rope, he plunged back into the water to try and free his fellow diver. Unfortunately, he failed to relocate Miloslav and his marker. Walter ultimately resurfaced unsuccessful. He poured over the map of the cave, convinced he'd missed something, that he'd taken a wrong turn. It was dark, maybe he'd originally gone further than he thought. He wanted to try a third time. I did try to convince him to let it go, but I'll admit I didn't try very hard. I didn't actually see a problem with his plan, only that I was eager to get back home to Canada. But Walter insisted, and I agreed. And so, once he was ready, my husband, Walter St. Clair, took his final dive. All was well at first, and he was progressing nicely. He had several backup oxygen tanks, my Walter was always the cautious type, and everything one might need to free a body, from ropes to knives. It was about an hour in when he finally saw something. The radio made a scratching noise, and he said, There's my marker. He's got to be near. He sounded excited, optimistic. I let his slow, rhythmic breaths relax me, hoping to distract myself from the thoughts of cold, dark crevices and the bones that lurked within. I tried not to focus on the mental image of Walter laying his hand on Miloslav's body, only for human soup to pour out in a rosy sludge, blurring his vision. I tried to think of kittens and rainbows and the elation Miloslav's parents would feel to finally have their boy back. And then Walter's heart rate increased. Is everything okay down there? I asked. Walter replied, I'm fine. I found him. He scared me. Yes, I'd imagine a large mass floating in the darkness could easily startle a person, but even after the initial shock, his heart rate remained tense. He's still stuck, Walter said. Trying to... He didn't finish that thought, though it was obvious he was trying to either untangle or unwedge or unwhatever was needed. I waited by the pool of water, my toes digging into my shoes. I tried not to say anything because I didn't want to distract him. Under that much water pressure, any movement requires a lot of physical effort. I liken it to the intense pull of gravity. There's a force down there. It might not pull you down, but it has its own weight that pulls you from the inside, trying to coil you up like a closed fist so you don't waste energy on anything that isn't absolutely necessary. Walter's heart rate increased again. I I think he moved, he said. I should have known from the horror in his tone that that wasn't an explicitly good thing. I thought it was. I thought he meant he'd cut him loose, but as his heart rate started climbing again, all my nightmares of cave walls closing in around me came back. Walter, are you okay? He moved. Sometimes the pressure and lack of oxygen gets to people, even experienced divers, even people trained to recognize the warning signs. It's one thing to know disorientation can occur, but it's another to experience it. Walter was starting to panic, and all I could think was that he might be succumbing to hypoxia. 
Walter, my Walter, who was always so safe and took every precaution, who was down there only because he felt like he had a duty to bring a lost diver home. I tried to calm him down, tell him to come back, even though I feared I was too late. Decompression would take hours, and if he was as bad as he sounded, I doubted he had time. Like I said earlier, you usually know. Walter started screaming, a mix of howls and pleas. Let me go! No! He's got me! Help! No! Ah! I sobbed. As his heart rate spiked even higher, I tried to guide him as best I could. Change your oxygen tank, follow the rope back, come back to me, but... I couldn't get through to him. He was too far gone, and so quickly, too. And then his heart rate slowed. Walter, I asked tearfully. He didn't reply. He was unconscious. His breathing was shallow and irregular. I listened to it, telling him how much I loved him, how proud I was of him. I sang to him. I know he was already out, but maybe he could hear me still like a coma patient. I talked and listened, and eventually both the heart rate and breathing came to a painful stop. I've lived the past five years thinking he succumbed to hypoxia and died alone in that deep, dark cave, never to be seen again. I've since given lectures on diving safety, on recognizing early signs of hypoxia in yourself and your fellow divers. I've tried to stress the importance of safety and protocol to people, and I've tried to make them understand that even if you do everything right, the outcome can still lead to tragedy. I didn't want people to be afraid of diving. Walter wouldn't have wanted that, but... I just wanted divers to be more careful. A few days ago, a diver recovered what was left of Walter's body. I was wrong when I thought Miloslav's parents would be grateful and relieved to get their son back. I felt a hollow feeling. Any shred of hope I might have had, dumb as it had been, that he'd somehow miraculously come to, found his way out through another hole, but suffered amnesia. Every what-if scenario that sometimes got me through the night was now wiped off the board. And then I saw the video. His head cam had somehow survived five years underwater, the SD card intact. I debated whether to watch it, but I eventually pulled up the file. Darkness. Walter's hands, threading water, cave walls, the orange marker he'd left. And then his head spun sharply, and I could just barely see the other diver's body floating over him, perhaps jostled by a water current. The angle shifted with Walter's head as he swam closer. There was a long moment of quiet contemplation as he tried to figure out his game plan. I can see him 
flipping through his tools, looking for something, and that's when... That's when the arms, floating limply in his line of sight, suddenly reached out and grabbed him. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Shadow Puppets When we were young, my brothers and I shared a room. Those two were great at making shadow puppets come to life, Tyler could make a soaring hawk and John a fearsome wolf. Me? I was never able to make anything that looked remotely like something. Before you start harking on me and telling me how easy it is, and I should have at least been able to make a bunny, keep in mind that John can't snap his fingers, so I'm not the only failure in the family. My brothers never made me feel bad about my shortcomings, but I felt a little sad all the same. I'd watch as they tell stories with their shadow puppets and want to join in on their games of shadow tag we'd play until one of us fell asleep. Everything changed the day we moved to a bigger house. We all got our own bedrooms, mine's being the smallest since I was the youngest and our nightly games came to an end. I'd practice making shadow puppets on my own in the hopes that I would eventually learn and impress my brothers, but no matter how hard I tried, I never really got any better. One night, I'd stayed awake practicing later than usual, knowing my brothers and I were going to have a weekend sleepover, but I was exhausted, my head bobbing, my eyelids drooping, but something suddenly snapped me awake. A shadow crept into my view from below. Much like my own shadow puppets, it wasn't a distinctive shape. It was an upright large oval with eight little tentacles wiggling out from the top. I managed to mimic it by bringing my hands together and crisscrossing my fingers. The shape bloomed like a flower, opening wide and then snapping shut. Kind of reminded me of a Venus flytrap. Thinking it was one of my brothers hiding under my bed, I called out, Tyler? No reply. John? Still nothing. It's not funny, guys. I whimpered. The shape opened and closed twice. I pulled my blanket up to my neck and slowly pushed myself to the edge of the bed. Even though I fully anticipated I'd find one of my brothers hiding under there waiting to jump out at me, even though I was ready for it, I was still nervous and tense. It was like watching the villain of a horror movie slowly creep towards its heroine, knowing full well what's going to happen, but being anxious all the same. Fear was palpable. I could feel my heart thrashing and throbbing like a trout out of water. I took a deep breath, braced myself, and looked under the bed. There was nothing there, just dust bunnies and the robot toy I'd lost earlier that week. I tilted my head back and looked at the wall. The shadow puppet was still there, snapping its maw open and shot over and over again. Then suddenly, it darted closer to my shadow and I quickly pulled my torso back onto the mattress, turned off the light, and hid under my blanket until I passed out. 
Come morning, I dismissed it as being a bad dream. That night, I showed off the cool Venus flytrap shadow puppet I learned to make thanks to that nightmare. The heck is that supposed to be? complained Tyler. John laughed. Lame. Uh, the L word. They weren't pulling any punches. I couldn't have felt any more uncool if I was forced to go to school with suspenders and braces. Still reeling from the soul-crushing roast I received at the sleepover, I spent the rest of the week trying to perfect my craft, but kept falling asleep before I had much time to practice. And then one night, the buzz of my flashlight woke me up. I opened my eyes and saw its flickering halo on the wall, but didn't find it on my bed. I had somehow fallen on the ground without waking me up. A weird shadow was slowly inching from one side of the illuminated circle to the other. It had long ears, a spindly body, and a morphed tail shaped like a question mark. I was petrified. And then it got smaller as the thing casting the shadow moved farther away from the source of the light and closer to the wall. My cat came into view and stared at me as though trying to say, The heck's your problem, man? That would have been a good time to let out a string of expletives, but at that age, even in my most private moments, I didn't dare utter those words. I was still at the age where I thought my mom literally had eyes in the back of her head. Hell, I'm an adult now, and I'm not convinced she doesn't. My cat disappeared from view, but I could tell where she was based on her shadow. She started darting back and forth and pouncing on nothing in the way cats tend to do for no good reason. Since she seemed to want to play, I stretched my hand out over the side of the bed and wiggled my fingers, unsure whether she'd go directly for them or for their shadow on the wall. She seemed torn between the two, at times throwing herself at the wall like a bird in a newly cleaned patio door, and at others, nuzzling my fingertips. I stopped moving when I saw the Venus flytrap-like shadow emerging. At that point, my cat was out of view again. Her shadow showed her standing sideways, looking at the new shadow curiously. I heard her hiss and saw hairs on their body raise like a mohawk. In one fell swoop, the Venus flytrap opened, darted towards her shadow, and snapped shut halfway through. They jumped, let out a yelp, and looked over the side of the bed. I wish I hadn't. I could have spared myself a lot of hurt if I just closed my eyes right then and there and pretended I hadn't seen anything. Instead, I have a mental image of it now. An image I'll never be able to wash away from my mind until the day I die. I should have known better when I saw only half of my cat's shadow being cast on the wall, but I looked anyways. I looked and saw her still twitching hind legs attached to the lower half of her body. Then I watched as the Venus flytrap bit down on what was left of her shadow, and her body disappeared. Nothing was casting that shadow. I was looking at the floor the whole time. There was nothing there. I threw my blanket over the flashlight and cried myself to sleep. It took my parents about a week before they told us our cat had gone missing. I didn't tell them the truth. I might have been a stupid kid who couldn't even make a proper shadow puppet, but I knew better than to say something about it. 
They'd think I was nuts or tell me I was dreaming. We put up posters and went through the stages of grief. Tyler was angry at first. John refused to believe she was gone. As for me, I just felt numb. The secret weighed on me, but the fear of telling and the fear of the shadow in my room weighed even heavier. I slept in complete darkness. No night lights, no hallway lights, no half-open blinds. I was terrified of the shadows. The only place that was safe from the shadows was in darkness, because the only thing that can cast a shadow is light. This went on for about a month before we had our next sleepover, and by then, pretty much everyone had accepted our cat wasn't coming back. It was late, but the three of us were wide awake from the plethora of Halloween candy we'd snuck out of the kitchen when our parents weren't watching. I was afraid from the moment Tyler turned on the flashlight and proposed we make shadow puppets. No, I want to sleep, I whispered, hoping he'd turn the light off. Tyler snorted. What are you, five? Come on, let's play. John kicked me in the shin. I don't want to, I croaked. Lame, said John. Leave him alone, replied Tyler sternly. His voice softened as he addressed me. If you want to sleep, then sleep. We're playing. I closed my eyes and turned away, trying to ignore the Miss Tyler's hawk and John's wolf flew around the room. They were laughing and making their shadow puppets play fight, and then they suddenly stopped. Don't do that, John scolded. Tyler replied, it's not me. David, stop, it's not funny. What? I replied. I was confused. I could tell they were upset, but I didn't know why. At least not until I saw the feline shadow casually trotting from one flashlight's halo to the other. It pounced at Tyler's hawk and pawed at John's woof, just like our cat used to do. I felt my stomach drop and bounce back like my guts were made out of a bungee cord. I tried to tell them I wasn't projecting it. I tried to remind them that I suck at shadow puppets, but they kept shouting at me to stop and getting more and more upset until they finally turned off their flashlight. Not funny, I heard John grumble. I'm going to sleep, added Tyler. I remember the way they looked at me the next morning. Their eyes were so full of animosity that I felt like a nerd trying to sit at the cool kid's table. I think my mom talked to them later because they eventually stopped treating me like a leper and slowly started including me in their games again. They never played with shadow puppets again, though. At least not with me. We grew up like people tend to do. John moved away. Our parents sold their house to Tyler so they could move into a smaller place. Tyler got married and had kids, and I became that weird person with three cats and no social life. A few weeks ago, Tyler's wife called in a panic and asked if I'd seen him. Long story short, he'd gone missing without a trace. Sure, their marriage had been on the rocks for a few years, but I knew Tyler well enough to know he wouldn't leave his family. I drove over to their house, to my old house, and I tried to help as much as I could. I knew right from the moment I stepped through that door and saw his youngest daughter. I knew what had happened. I recognized the numb look in her eyes as my sister-in-law grimly welcomed me in. 
I slept in my niece's room that night with a flashlight tucked under my armpit just to be sure while the kiddo slept with her mother. Once everyone was asleep and the house was quiet, I flicked the flashlight on and waited. I found the Venus flytrap in a corner. A hawk flew across the ceiling and my cat came running after it in an eternal game of shadow tag.